The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up. We gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered in the praise of God for our congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written and emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of ministry in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. Today, we welcome to our pulpit our friend and colleague, the Reverend Jennifer Quigley, chapel associate here for vocational discernment. We are interested week by week in helping one another discover where our deepest passion meets the world's greatest need. We welcome Jen as she brings us the gospel theme, Lost and Found. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
Together may we pray. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, as we begin in worship, we pause to recognize our fragility and our fallibility. Long ago, Kathleen Norris said, sometimes sin is just not receiving what's given. But other times, she said, sin is the neglect to say or to do day by day that which is good. We recognize our freedom to choose and sometimes our fallibility in choosing as we speak and as we do. Now as the choir sings our traditional Kyrie, may we bow for a time of personal silent confession. Let us pray. have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. O thou in whose pardon we do rest, grant us, we ask, thy peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Beloved, hear the good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, and 22 through 28. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind comes from me out of the bare heights in the desert toward my poor people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too strong for that. Now it is I who speak in judgment against them. For my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but do not know how to do good. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord. 
before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Because of this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above grow black. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsibly verses from Psalm 14 with the Antiphon. say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they shall be in great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. And now please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Glory to you, O Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, his fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We at Marsh Chapel are committed to the lectionary. We stray from time to time to be, uh, to be sure, but on the whole, we stick to the revised common lectionary. Following the lectionary helps to order consistent worship. It serves to educate children and adults week after week, and it is an excellent spiritual discipline. But I will admit, when I saw the lectionary readings for this Sunday, the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, year C, I strongly considered scrapping the lectionary altogether. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's only two weeks into the school year. Do we have to read Jeremiah already? <laughs> of all the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, major or minor, Jeremiah is the only one to get his own word, Jeremiah which, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means a lamentation of writing or speech in a strain of grief or distress, a doleful complaint, a complaining tirade. The prophet Jeremiah is remembered as so down, so distressed, and so doleful that the Vulgate, Jerome, and Origen all attribute the Book of Lamentations to him. Have you ever been to the Boston Public Library? If you are new to Boston and have not yet made your way to Copley Square, do go. Walking among endless stacks of books can be as meditative and relaxing as, say, a walk along the beach. Boston's common temple dedicated to the free and public access to the intellectual fruits of human history is blessed with a room full of John Singer Sargent murals entitled The Triumph of Religion. The east wall has a frieze of prophets, 16 life-size portrayals, and John Singer Sargent tailors each to the specific character of the biblical figure. For example, Isaiah stands, arms at shoulder height, hands and eyes reaching upwards, eyes changing from despair to dawning hope. Jonah, on the other hand, the reluctant prophet, hides behind Isaiah, face ducking, turning away from the viewer, and Jeremiah. Jeremiah stands wrapped in a washed-out white robe, his hands hidden, his body hidden, with his chin down, mourning. His posture is far less theatrical and far less posed than any of the other figures. The dark gash of his mouth and the shadows around his eyes make it seem as though he's been captured mid-sob. As you scan the phrase, other prophets look angry, ashamed, or even tortured. But only Jeremiah looks so completely and utterly lost. 
And feeling a little lost is actually a pretty appropriate place to be two weeks into the school year. I'm sure most of us, especially if it is our first year at Boston University, have lost something or gotten lost sometime in the past few weeks. You might have gone to the wrong classroom, lost your student ID, felt a little lost in your organic chemistry lecture, felt lost without your high school friends around, or maybe, just maybe, you got lost in the gap. Not the gap between the tea and the platform or the apparel store, but the gap. You know, Gardner, Ashford, and Pratt Streets. My freshman year at Boston University, I just lost an umbrella in the first two weeks of school. Not too bad, you might say. But I lost my umbrella in such spectacular fashion that it left me feeling lost and adrift for weeks and months into my freshman year. With no social prospects for the weekend, feeling a little lonely and a lot uncertain, I went with a small group of people to a house in the Gap. Someone lent me $5 because I didn't know you needed $5, and I was suddenly handed a red cup and ushered in the door. It was rainy and a little cold, but the girls had dressed up, so we deposited our coats and umbrellas in a large walk-in closet and were quickly ushered to the unfinished cement basement. The steps were rickety and wooden, and I thought they'd give way any moment under our teetering high heels. There were almost no lights, so it wasn't until I made it to the bottom that I realized just how crowded it was. There were more than a hundred people, shoulder to shoulder, jammed in like a can of sardines. Music was blaring, and the crowd moved with it. And with more people trying to get down the stairs behind me, I saw no alternative but to just enter the flow of the crowd. I immediately felt claustrophobic, uncomfortable, overheated, and I suddenly realized this basement had no doors except the one I'd just entered, no windows, no way out except those rickety stairs. My mind began to race. What if the cops came? What if everyone panicked and tried to leave at once? What if I got separated from my friends? I really just wanted to leave. But the movements of the crowd forced me to make a long, slow procession around the edge of the basement, passing luge, pong table, and sound system. 30 minutes later, I was finally able to fight my way out of the basement, and our group decided to leave before things got too out of hand, and we worked our way against the flow of traffic back to the code closet. Except when we got there, the door to the closet was now closed, a handwritten sign claimed the closet as the VIP room, and heavy, sweet smoke wafted from under the door, accompanied by the kind of soundtrack best left off the radio airwaves. My friend's boyfriend gallantly volunteered to retrieve our things for us, so he sucked in his breath, opened the door, and disappeared. He emerged a few long minutes later, looking positively shell-shocked, but with our coats in hand. I looked plaintively at him and said, my umbrella? I'm not going back in there, he said. <laughs> and that's, that's how I lost my umbrella my freshman year. But I really, I really did only lose an umbrella. It could have been much, much worse. I wasn't arrested. The building didn't catch on fire. I didn't black out. Losing an umbrella, no matter how dramatically, does not register on the scale of human history or even my own life. But the feelings of that experience that night lingered. I felt, in a word, lost. And from there, my emotions became entangled in an increasingly knotted mess. Was this the only way to meet people in college? Maybe it just wasn't cool enough for BU. Other people must have been f having fun at that party, right? I mean, people looked like they were having fun. Why did I have to be lame and leave? Did my very newfound friends judge me for leaving? I hardly left my dorm after that weekend, even avoiding the tame university-sponsored Halloween party in my own brownstone a few weeks later. I felt too lost, too alone, too overwhelmed. As you can imagine, it was a very lonely semester in my dorm room, and it took a long time before I didn't feel so lost. If we're honest, Students, especially freshman students, often do one of two things 
when confronted with the gap, when they get that initial pang of discomfort. They either do what I did, they avoid getting involved on campus, they stay in their dorm rooms on the weekends, G-chatting with their high school friends and retreating into the digital world of Facebook and Twitter. Or they force down that discomfort along with some cheap liquor and throw themselves into the only cultural option they believe exists, party culture. Either way, alone in a dorm room or with a hundred people in a crowded basement, you feel lost. Self-conscious, adrift, directionless, alone, despairing, frustrated, numb, lost. The human experience of feeling lost is universal, but the expression of that feeling is boundless in its possibilities. When people feel lost, they sometimes say and do terrible things to themselves and to one another. And feeling lost is not only a solitary experience, it only takes a quick glance at our newspapers, at the dialogue and debate surrounding Syria, to notice a creeping feeling of lostness in the way we talk to and about one another. When diplomatic, non-military options come not from reasoned consideration or genuine dialogue, but from angry offhand remarks at a press conference, you can't help but feel we're a little lost. Our reading from Jeremiah today, our little lectionary Jeremiah, is a very human expression of that same lostness. The book of Jeremiah is set in the period leading up to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire in 587 BCE. And Jeremiah, looking around, knows something is wrong. He feels as though the people of Jerusalem are lost, they're headed down the wrong path. This reading is full of personal and collective despair personal and collective loss. This angry, ranting prophecy, this imagined rush of hot air from on high, is a very human response to a very human feeling of lostness. That same feeling that wreaks havoc on college campuses every fall. But how do we move from lost to found? I think we've actually already heard the answer preached two weeks ago at our matriculation service by Dean Hill with his hand on the altar, the table of the Lord's Supper, history and mystery. But I choose two different terms for this day, for this set of lectionary readings, for this moment, two weeks into a school year. Memory and grace. That memory is a solution to lostness is, of course, obvious. When we lose our way on campus or misplace our student ID, we really should only need to access our memory to overcome some unfortunate mental block. I mean, I lose my keys far more often than anyone my age should lose anything. And, and my husband will often ask, well, where did you have them last? How frustrating. As if it were that easy. Memory is not some magical switch that you can turn on or off. It's a difficult process, a process of digging and sifting and sorting. It's some of the hardest, most mind-breaking work there is. Seamus Haney, the Irish poet and Nobel laureate who passed away just a few weeks ago, wrote a poem in 1966 which hauntingly encapsulates the intersection of memory and loss. It's called digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into the gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. 
By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle corked sloppily with paper. He straightened it up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head, but I have no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. This is a poem, in one sense, about vocation. Haney only discovers a sense of his vocation, who, he, who and how he is called to be in the world through a process of memory. The words only pour from pen to paper as he recalls the hard physical labor of his father and his grandfather digging in field and turf. It is only through remembering that he is able to move from a sense of loss and being lost, but I have no spade to follow men like them, to found. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. What memory work do we need to do as a country? How can we dig around in the collective recesses of our minds to find a way to engage in civil discourse and diplomacy? What memory work do we need to do as a church? How can we dig around in tradition and scripture with reasoned discipline to address our experiences today? What memory work do we need to do as a school? How can we dig around in our institutional memory, our history of openness and inclusion, to answer real, hard questions about who is included and excluded today? What memory work do you need to do? Where do you need to dig around in your memory to find your own most self, your sense of call, your vocation? What memory should we dig into in order to begin to find ourselves? Now, that's a fascinating phrase in American English parlance. We often talk about finding ourselves. You'll hear something like, Emily is backpacking through Europe to find herself. Or, Josh chose that college because he really wanted to find himself. The implication is that we can find ourselves in exactly the same way that we would find a lost set of keys or a misplaced ID. The onus is all on us. This is a guilt-inducing turn of phrase. If we somehow end up feeling lost, it must be our fault. Perhaps we just haven't had the right experience, we haven't looked in the right place. I've studied a few languages in my years of school, and I've never studied another one where the verb to find is used reflexively, the way that we use it often in America. But the gospel message this morning pushes back on that colloquialism and it speaks back to a cultural parlance where we must find our own way out of feeling lost. Our gospel this morning tells us that we are sought out. We do not and cannot find ourselves on our own, but instead can be found. In the parables this morning of lost sheep and lost coin, we are neither shepherd nor woman, but rather beloved sheep and precious coin. God seeks us out with the urgency of a shepherd climbing frantically on a mountainside or a woman frantically sweeping under the furniture. Grace is the serendipitous moment of being found. And doesn't this ring true with our own experience? I know I didn't venture out of my dorm room again on my own. I stopped feeling lost only when my roommate dragged me to the dining hall, night after night, dragged me to the movies, dragged me to the theater, dragged me to a dance. And on the other end of the spectrum, so many students who are caught up in a cycle of self-destructive behavior are only able to break the cycle when a friend says, I'm concerned. A faculty person says, your grades aren't where they could be. Or an administrator says, I know you have something to contribute to campus life. 
these moments are grace-filled. From the wisdom of others who have walked the way before us, we learn that there are many ways to be and belong on a college campus, many ways to have fun without buying into the myth of party culture, a myth that teaches that you can only find yourself by losing yourself. So, if you're feeling a little lost two weeks into this semester, start trying to remember who you are and where you've come from. And if you're not feeling quite so lost, take a look around. Is there anyone you can help find their way? To whom can you offer the gift of grace that you have experienced, that has brought you safe thus far, and the grace that will bring you home? As a first overture, a first step, here is my top 10 list of things you can do, even as a freshman, with a group of friends, late at night, and on a budget, without falling into the gap. These are all above and beyond the hundreds of university-sponsored events occurring on campus during any given week. You might find yourself, or be found, by doing one or more of the following. One, walk along the Esplanade, cross the Mass Ave Bridge, follow the Smoots, walk along the river along Memorial Drive, and see BU's campus from the other side of the river. Pass the BU Boathouse, cross the BU Bridge, and stop in the middle to admire the skyline. Two, play Mafia. See me after worship for the rules if you don't know how to play. <laughs> or apples to apples, cards against humanity, etc., etc. Three, take the tea to the north end. Buy pastries from both Mike's and Modern. Compare. <laughs> Four, host a micro-fridge iron chef competition. Pick a secret ingredient, $5 buy-in. All food must be prepared in a dorm micro-fridge. Five, go to a midnight movie showing at the Coolidge Corner Theater, or go to a midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Six, make a parkour-style obstacle course using the permanent workout equipment on the Esplanade. Winner gets bragging rights. Seven, spring for some classy late-night dining on the cheap. Try Finale, the late-night menu at Eastern Standard, or many others. Eight, go to a poetry reading, an improv show, or an open mic night at an 18-plus venue. Nine, rent hubway bikes, wear a helmet, of course, and bike somewhere you've never been. Ten, get cultured. Get $15 Huntington Theater tickets, check out Third Thursdays at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, or even see some Shakespeare like you've never seen Shakespeare before by going to the Donkey Show, that 70s disco performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is hosted at the Oberon. Lost and found, memory and grace. It wouldn't be a bad thing to end there. But it's always worth getting trusted feedback when you're a little unsure or when a task is particularly difficult, whether it's a paper, a job application, or a sermon. Faced with a difficult lectionary and an even more difficult theme, I got a little input and I was asked, you talk a lot about party culture. Do you have a theology of partying? I will end then with a working draft of my theology of partying. When you need to make a decision, ask yourself, does this help me find myself, or am I doing this to lose myself? Amen.
As we turn to prayer, you are welcome to remain standing, sit, or kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together the call to prayer, hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Eternal, immortal, invisible, you are the only God. We honor and glorify you, gracious Father. We thank you for your mercy and unlimited patience. Though we are sinners, your grace flows abundantly for us with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Humbly, we bow before you and pray for your abundant grace. For we have strayed, turning away from you and towards the ways of the world we pray for forgiveness. As a sinful people, we pray the prayer of David, have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. For like David, we are quick to find fault in others while failing to recognize those same faults in ourselves. Cleanse our heart and renew a right spirit within us so that instead of criticism, we approach others with humility, gentleness, patience, understanding, and peacefulness. As we begin a new academic year, we ask that you bless our, ch our chapel clergy and staff. We thank you for their service. We pray for all who are in service, especially those whose call to service takes them away from their loved ones. Bless those who are working to spread the good news of your love throughout the world. Many of these people are in harm's way and some are being persecuted. Thank you for their service. Please deliver them from evil and give them the strength and courage to continue this important work. Help of the helpless abide with us. Bless the sick and comfort the grieving. On this day, September 15th, a painful day in our nation's history, at the end of this week, a painful week in our nation's history, we pray for peace. Comfort all who are caught in the crossfires of violence in their countries, neighborhoods, and homes. And we pray that in the aftermath of violence, we remember the lesson at the 16th Street Baptist Church today as it was 50 years ago, the love that never forgives, the love that forgives. Grant us willing spirits so that we will resist our worldly urges and follow the heavenly example to forgive. We pray for our nation's president and his cabinet, as well as their counterparts around the world, Give them the courage to work together for peace. And we pray that our legislatures have the discernment to recognize our nation's most pressing problems and have the fortitude and courage to work with their colleagues across the aisle to pass legislation to address these issues. Give ear to us and hear our prayer, for we pray them in the name of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, amen. And now as a community of faith, we join voices to pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
well-beloved, as recipients of the gifts of memory and grace, we pause to say a special word of greeting to those who may be with us for the first time. If you are, help us to get to know you by joining with the congregation in the use of the red pads that will come to you from the center aisle, so that following the postlude, we may greet one another by name and we may know one another in person. We draw your attention to the notices that are printed in your bulletin, especially we recognize these three small groups that meet prior to worship, thanking their leaders, Brittany, Holly, Jen and Liz, and the three small groups that meet uh, following worship, thanking their leaders, uh, Mark and Jessica and Graylin. Notice as well a uh, growing and very popular series of reading retreats that are found as well in your green insert today. Now in a moment with the choir singing, we will... I've just been advised to mention as well, there's yet another group that meets following worship, which is the Thurman Choir. The Thurman Choir, named after Howard Thurman, is a non-audition, open to all choir that began last year, and it is a real gem. You will want to serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. We turn now to the offering and a word as we enter the autumn about the offering. Every Sunday, as an act of praise, we receive the gifts of God for the people of God to the work of God. But you know, friends, we teach by precept and example the importance of generosity, disciplined giving, percentage giving, tithing. Where that gift goes is secondary, whether the gift is $40 or $4 million or something in between. But we have a role to play in teaching the practice of Christian stewardship. Here is an ironic truth. You only truly have what you give away. You only finally fully possess what you have the freedom and grace to give another. Here is a moment of joy. The ushers will wait upon us as our choir sings in this morning's offertory.
merciful God, may our giving reflect our knowledge of how important we are to you, but also how we value our relationship with you. More than sharing our money, may we give our whole selves to help others know of your grace and never-failing love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. little lost, may you go forth from this place knowing that God is seeking to find you. Amen. <laughs> 